Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And before we go any further, I want to thank everyone who donated on behalf of Talking Animals as part of WMNF's Winter Fun Drive, which we just concluded about two hours ago. Uh, Talking Animals did reach our fundraising goal, I'm happy to report, but WNF fell a little bit short of the overall station goal. So if you didn't have a chance to pledge during the past week or would just like to donate again to help us reach that goal, please go to WMNF.org and donate there. Or you can call 813-238-8001 and pledge that way. Meanwhile, my guest today is Amy Kite. Executive Director of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, a multifaceted operation in Jupiter, Florida, serving as a wildlife refuge, veterinary hospital, rehabilitation facility, and education center. In the wake of last week's deadly gator attack in Fort Pierce, Kite has been offering tips and warnings about living amongst alligators in multiple forms, including on the local NBC affiliate. Kite is also in the midst of preparing Bush Wildlife Sanctuary's highly ambitious, enormously complicated relocation involving moving from its current 11-acre site to a new nearly 20-acre spread. The new location will provide an array of virtues, but on the other hand, to embrace those advantages, and there's plenty, including a new state-of-the-art rehabilitation center and an ever-growing number of patients that they see in the veterinary hospital. That does involve a huge, complicated, logistics-heavy plan to move every element of the sanctuary, including some 200 animals, among those a gator, bears, bobcats, Florida panthers, snakes, and raptors. So uh, complicated, and as you might imagine, it's a costly enterprise. So we'll cover topics ranging from gator attacks to moving 200 animals to a new location and more when I speak with Amy Kite in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Gail Carroll, a longtime puppy raiser with Southeastern Guide Dogs. I should note that Gail and her husband Paul are longtime WMNF supporters and volunteers. Southeastern Guide Dogs is holding a puppy meet and greet this Saturday, March 4th at Leo and Lucky's in Parrish. We'll touch on the meet and greet. I mean, it's hard to imagine a better meet and greet than a puppy meet and greet. But we'll see her more broadly about Southeastern Guide Dogs, puppy raising and more when I speak with Gail later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk gators, other wildlife, and more with Amy Kite with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Amy Kite back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me back again. For sure. So you've been in the news and on TV lately in the wake of the fatal gator attack last week. Let's talk a little bit about that attack because as tragic and horrific as it was, and certainly all those things, there may be some things we can learn from it. So I can describe or you can either way briefly what happened and then i'd love to have you kind of comment on some aspects of it and offer some kind of warnings and advice for living where there's plenty of gators absolutely i mean obviously it's a horrible tragedy and and i'll be very honest with you i know there's video that has surfaced i myself have not watched it um but i've heard you know that it, it seems as though this particular alligator was one that had gotten very comfortable in its surroundings there um the community i think may have had i hate to say it a hand in making that animal feel so comfortable and it just lost its fear of humans and that's 
about the worst thing that you can encounter with any wild animal that is the most dangerous wild animal is one that um, doesn't have any fear of people anymore. And that's when you have these tragic outcomes. And Amy, how do you, like in a situation like that where there's a gator in a pond, basically, I mean, how do you keep from fostering that comfort in the gator. If the gator's going to be in the pond, I guess maybe that's part of the question is, if the gator's going to stay in the pond, what do you do and what do you not do so as to make sure that the gator's not so comfortable around humans that then we have a horrible attack like just happened last week? First and foremost, and I mean, I think everybody here kind of, you know, in Florida, here's this very often, don't ever feed wild animals. You know, that's the first thing is if you have an animal like an alligator, and someone feeds it, whether it be, um, you know, just kitchen scraps or you've gone fishing and you've got some, some carcass or something like that, um, don't feed the wildlife. Because the second that you feed them, whether it be an alligator or a bear or even, you know, raccoons and such, um, and they automatically think, okay, well, people aren't that bad. You know, people are my friend. They help me out. And that's the first thing. And that's going to be, you're, you're reinforcing that behavior even. Um, so that's number one. Number two is something I always just say, you kind of want to be a bad neighbor. You know, you, if you see the alligator and it's come up out of the water onto the, the bank of, of your backyard, if you live on a pond or a canal, you know, bang some pots and pans together, yell a little bit. If you can safely turn a sprinkler on, you know, things like that that make them go, oh, when these people show up, my life just gets so annoying and so complicated. Yeah. You know, that's going to make these animals, you know, feel that we're a threat to them. Uh, and that's really what you want them to believe. That way they want to stay as far away from you as possible or possibly even relocate naturally to an area where there aren't as many people around. And that's really the ultimate goal, of course, is to let wildlife be wild and have animal or have humans, excuse me, um, be able to live in their neighborhood and coexist. Right. So if the gator, I guess, uh, thinks, hey, I've moved to a place and there's nobody banging on pots and pans. I like it a lot better here Then everybody has kind of uh, succeeded in that scenario. Exactly. You know, I and mean, this could work for a number of animals. You know, you have a raccoon that keeps coming in, in, into your pool area. You know, there's ways to deter them. And it's the same thing. If you had neighbors that were always calling code enforcement on you or having large, loud parties all the time, you know, you also might reconsider where you live. Same yeah. thing with wildlife. Make it a little uncomfortable and make sure that that respect for humans is still there in the wild kingdom. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I wasn't as smart as you were, and I did watch the video that did surface of this gator attack, and it did seem, well, again, it was absolutely awful, and I haven't really slept great since I saw it, but but it, it seemed like exactly kind of what we're talking about. The gator felt super comfortable, and unfortunately for this woman that was the victim, you know, she may not typically have done this, but she was walking right sort of along the edge with her dog, which I think probably spurred the gator to say, hey, this doesn't happen that often, but let me let me sort of take advantage here. And that's what happened. But I think what's, yeah, uh, yeah. again, I think it's a comfort level with the gator had and perhaps maybe a a lapse in this woman's, uh, I'm going to guess at least she didn't normally walk her dog that close to the the edge of the pond each morning. Well, and it is something to to always keep in mind, and this extends beyond alligators. You know, when it comes to wildlife, they're generally, um, survival for them is very opportunistic. You know, Um, while dogs aren't in an alligator's normal food chain, if an opportunity arises and you have an animal just like you or I, if you were in a dire situation, 
um, and you were starving for whatever reason that might be, and an opportunity out of the norm presents itself, you might do things you normally wouldn't do because yeah. biologically you're, you're suffering. Yeah. Uh, and that might be a situation. You know, we have so many man-made ponds in different developments in different communities throughout Florida. You know, a lot of those aren't necessarily stocked with a ton of food for alligators, you know. Yeah. dug them out to, to provide fill to build homes and things like that. But these aren't really great areas for an animal to sustain life for a long time. And that's, I, I'm totally just, you know, guessing and, and speculation right now. But it might be that case in this area where this alligator got into this pond, depleted the food source. You know, other wildlife, they learn, you know, ducks and turtles and things like that. If there's a large predator, they're going to avoid the area. So that gator may have just been like, look, here's an opportunity where there's a dog close to the water. Not what I would normally do, but I'm starving and I'm going to take advantage of this. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, so it's another thing beyond being a bad neighbor and not feeding wildlife, but being aware of our surroundings, I think is a really great takeaway. You know, every, the way I assume it, every body of fresh water that we have here in Florida is going to have an alligator. And if you assume that and you keep a good, I know a lot of people say 10 feet away from the shoreline. Why 10 feet? Why not 20? You know, be extra cautious Yeah, um, and stay away, especially if you have a long dog leash or a retractable leash. You know, keep that close. These animals are often working on instinct, not logic or anything like that. And you just never know what their situation is either. And to avoid these tragedies, go extra far and just always assume that the worst could be lurking. For sure. No, I think, if, like you say, if you just give yourself plenty of room and then room beyond the plenty of room, then you're not probably vulnerable to this kind of thing happening. Because like you say, I mean, we don't know, but it's a good chance that that gator just saw an opportunity and or maybe hadn't eaten in a while. And so there was the email. We've got an email saying what happened to the dog. The dog actually survived the attack, but the woman that was walking the dog, sadly, again, was was killed in this attack. So that's what happened there. But I think subsequently, uh, Amy, from what I've heard is that kind of in that community where I guess there was maybe other ponds like this one, they had three more gators removed. So I guess that kind of philosophically made me want to ask you, like, what do you think is the proper response by the community when there is uh, an attack, in this case, fatal attack? Is there a protocol of sorts that just immediately almost requires that the, the gator that, that was involved in the fatal attack be not only removed but probably killed themselves? Or how does that work? Or is it very totally from case to case? I mean, there, there is a case to case, um, you know, that it's looked at. But the overarching commonality between them is if you have a, a human whether it be a fatality or just an injury, you know, to have that alligator removed, in most cases, that animal is going to be euthanized. Mm -hmm. um, the reason being is it's already displayed that, unfortunately, it can't be trusted yeah. around people out in the wild. And so many, I mean, I, I've had a few phone calls because of the different um, appearances I've done on news and things like that. Um, and the statements that I've made is, well, why can't they relocate the alligator? Well, you're looking at a state, being Florida here, that we have about a thousand people a day that move in and there's over a million alligators in florida and alligators are naturally extremely territorial so you take this i believe the gator you know that we're speaking of is about a 10 foot long alligator yeah where are you going to put that animal where one it's not going to come in contact with humans and two alligators don't already live there and are already you know 
not wanting any kind of other animals in there. You know, they're, that's why we have an alligator hunting season because they are so populated that they're having a hard time sustaining the alligator population that's in Florida. So it, it's a horrible situation. Of course, I never want to hear of any animal being euthanized, yeah. but I also recognize that the opposite, you know, if you, if you relocate it, one, it could harm somebody else, could hurt someone else, or two, it might die an awful death at the hands of other alligators that are already in that area due to fighting and competition. Yeah. So, you know, it's so there's no, awful. there's really no good solution. Cause you already kind of answered a question that I was going to ask, which is, does that gator pose a larger threat because it has already attacked someone? And it sounds like the answer is yes. Well, and I think also too, because, you know, you look at the alligator and it's, of course, you can't really take our, our human thoughts and our human emotions and apply them to these animals. But if something has worked for this animal, which was going up on the bank and, and taking down a human and it worked, why wouldn't it do it again? Yeah. You know, that behavior was reinforced by it worked, you know, so it's a very primitive mind. It's like I tried something that worked for me. And right. It would potentially do it again because it's been conditioned in that manner. And that's the hardest part is you obviously don't want anybody else to fall victim. But at the end of the day, in my personal opinion, I mean, a lot of times it's the wildlife that truly is the victim because I don't think this animal would have behaved in such a way unless there were extenuating factors that made it lose its fear of people, whether that be starvation, whether it be because people were feeding it. You know, there was something that changed the way that that animal was behaving to begin with that unfortunately caused this situation. But you definitely don't want to see a replay of it happen. Yeah. So here's then a kind of a more gray area type of question, I guess, then, because, uh, like I said, I, I read that the um, the community where this happened, I guess, has one or more other ponds. But there was certainly from wherever they were, there was three more gators removed. Now, if those gators, as far as we know, at least, did not were not involved in any kind of attack. But you already noted the difficulty of relocating a gator. Do those gators, will they still try to relocate them? Or do you think those gators that were removed in the wake of this other gator attacking, fatally attacking this woman, are they kind of uh, headed for a fairly dark uh, end as well? Um, since those animals, there's no evidence that they've done something of this magnitude. Yeah. It would really be a case-by-case -case basis. You know, factors that play into it would be the size of the animal. You know, generally, if it's an animal under four feet in length, there is more um, probability that relocation would be successful because that's still like a, an immature or juvenile alligator. So larger gators would be more accepting of having a smaller gator because they don't view it as competition. So that's a possibility. There's possibilities of them possibly being placed in um, a gator farm, which we have throughout Florida, or an educational opportunity for it. Um, I think this, I don't know if it was the state that came in and removed the gators or if the community worked with a private trapper to do such. Um, but those, I would see that they, you know, there'd be more of an opportunity for those animals to continue life rather than euthanasia. But I really don't know what each one's individual circumstances were. Yeah. Well, we've got a couple of emails here. One says uh, nuisance gators are almost killed 100% of the time. Don't feed them. And then this one says, there's my understanding gators over three to four feet are relocated to a gator processor. That's quote unquote. And yeah, this one's just clarifying the terms uh, just because they don't they don't really want to go in for euthanize when they're killed. But I understand what they're saying. Yeah, it's super complicated. And like you say, a lot of times these, these animals... 
that didn't really do anything. Like in this case, those three that were, that were taken out, we don't know what happened to them, but we know they were only taking out of where they were because of the the gator that did attack and kill this woman. So, um, yeah, and you don't know if there's so much too that I'm sure the public isn't privy to. You know, they may have found out in their investigation of this particular attack that there was somebody in the neighborhood who was feeding all of the alligators. You know, um, you just don't don't know. Yeah. Um, at, the, at the end of the day, the way that I see it is, it's a lose lose for every party involved. You know, obviously the poor woman who lost her life and her family, um, the community who, from what I understand, a lot of people in the community really like like the gators being around and like seeing them around. And, you know, until this happened, weren't necessarily terribly concerned. And again, I haven't watched all the videos and seen all the reports, um, but it's a lose for the alligator who was probably just trying to find a way to survive. The other gators that were removed, you know, it's a loss for them. And we see it in so many species, you know, one of the hardest things that we deal with here in Florida is the amount of invasive exotics we have, you know, animals like the pythons and the boas and the iguanas and even pigeons. They didn't ask to be here, but they're here now and they're destroying our environment, but it's really not that individual animal's fault. You know, it's a very difficult topic to discuss and to wrap your brain around. And at the end of the day, there is no great solution that, everyone in it is actually, you know, winning or gaining an advantage from. Yeah. No, it is, it's really complicated and there's just so many elements, like you say, just the basic wildlife, number one, and then invasive wildlife and sort of what they bring to the thing and, and that they, they didn't know they were doing anything wrong when <laughs> somehow they landed here or somebody turned them loose or whatever happened. And uh, yeah, so uh, as we often see, the wildlife's on the, the losing end of any of these kind of scenarios. This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Amy Kite, Executive Director of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. We're discussing, we're probably just wrapping up that discussion of the fatal gator attack last week. We'll also be discussing the sanctuary's plans to relocate to a new larger site. If you have a question for Amy about wildlife or any of those related topics or just like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663 or email dj at wmnf.org or you can text 813-433-0885. So, Amy, let's talk about some of the animals at your sanctuary. Maybe just fittingly we should start with your own alligator. What's that gator's story? What brought uh, him or her to the sanctuary? Sure. So the gator that we have at the sanctuary, her name is Freddie. And, yes, I said her name. Um, we didn't know when we got her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, she's actually been with us pretty much since the beginning of Bush Wildlife. Uh, not only is the sanctuary celebrating its 40th birthday this year, but so is Freddie. Wow. Uh, she was brought in um, when a little boy was out fishing with his dad, and he got bored, wandered off, and found an egg. So he took it home and cracked it open prematurely, unfortunately. Uh, but he just thought he had a lizard. And so he made a little shoebox habitat um, for the, the little lizard and put it under his bed and went to school the following week. And mom went in and was cleaning up and grabbing laundry and everything. And here she found this shoebox. And to her surprise, there was a baby alligator in it. <laughs> wow. um, so at the time when Bush Wildlife first started, we were located down in Miami, uh, not in Jupiter where we are now. And so she brought it in. And the goal was to try to reunite Freddie. But unfortunately, because she was hatched prematurely, she doesn't really function like your average alligator. 
So it was determined that she would need to stay in captivity. And she's been with us now for 40 years. Um, it has a wonderful habitat here. Yeah. We're really excited, though, because the new move, she's going to have a much larger one even. So wow. it's very exciting for us. Out in the wild, how long do gators typically live for? You know, out in the wild, any animal is going to live considerably less than the yeah. captive situation. For so sure. if you get, you know, uh, a 10 or 12 foot long gator, you know, that, that animal is potentially, you know, up in its early 30s. So, and that would be pretty decent size for here in Florida. Yeah. You know, in captivity, though, they can live to be, you know, 70, 80 years old. Um, wow. Of course, we're hoping to get many more years with Freddie. Of course. So, well, that was certainly an interesting story about what brought Freddie there. And again, part of the thing is with what you do there at Bush Wildlife Sanctuary is the animals that are brought there, I think typically, correct me if I'm wrong, the initial goal when they first get there is let's rehabilitate, let's see what they need medically, whatever. But the goal is to like set them back out into the wild. Is that the basic premise? Absolutely. Our, our goal is to get as many native animals back into the wild as we possibly can. Um, where the problem really comes in is majority of the animals that we take in are have traumatic injuries. Um, oftentimes caused by humans. So you're talking about a small bird that was hit by a car, um, a hawk that was electrocuted, a bunny that was attacked by somebody's dog. So, I mean, a lot of the things that we're seeing are, you know, very traumatic injuries to these tiny animals. And that's where, you know, we have the hospital and that's kind of a a humanitarian effort um, and a Band-Aid to a larger problem, which is really education and learning how to coexist. So that's where our second mission of education spawned off, um, trying to find more of a cure. Um, The goal would obviously be to get to a point where we don't have any of those animals coming into us because we all learn to coexist easily. But, you know, (laughs) that's one of those great pipe dreams. (laughs) For sure. Well, and there's I guess there's just quite a wide set of circumstances through which those animals do arrive there. And then, and then again, especially whatever their story ends up being with it makes them residents as opposed to be able to be released. For example, there are two black bears living there that I'm, uh, sisters, I believe, that I'm super fond of. Talk a little bit about their story. How did they land there and, and then what prevented them from being released? Sure. So, so bears and alligators often kind of follow the same path, whereas if, you know, like we talked about the alligator making quote, friends with humans and thinking that, that humans are actually beneficial to them. Same thing happens with bears. And oftentimes people are doing it unintentionally. But, you know, living in an area where bears are populated and having bird feeders up or putting food outside for outdoor cats or, or leaving your garbage cans um, unattended and, and not properly closed, bears learn this and they start to lose their fear of humans. And here in our state, there is kind of a law and it is a three strikes you're out thing. So if a bear finds its way into a neighborhood twice, they'll relocate it the first time, they'll relocate it the second time, and then the third time, they get concerned that it's gotten too used to people and there's a euthanasia policy that comes into play. Mm. And with our two bears that are here, mom had been a multiple-time offender. Um, she had gotten into neighborhoods, and on her third offense, she had two cubs with her. And so the state actually kind of broke their own rule they relocated the whole family far away from people with the hope that mom would keep the babies, you know, out in the woods, so to speak, and, and not teach them her nasty habits of getting into neighborhoods. And unfortunately, within less than two weeks, mom had brought her cubs back into a neighborhood and was teaching them how to get into garbage cans, how to get into swimming pools, walking into people's garages, 
And so the state of Florida felt that mom was too dangerous to continue being around humans. She was put down, um, but they reached out to facilities like Bush Wildlife and said, look, we have these two young cubs. We don't want them to be wild because mom has only taught them to rely on humans, but we'd love to see them in an educational area. And um, we reached out to a few of our donors, raised a, a little bit of quick money. We also reached out to Palm Beach Zoo, who's a wonderful partner with us, and they had the ability to take the two girls in, Fiona and Taya, uh, while we built a habitat here for them. And so we flew up, got two baby back bears, brought them down to Palm Beach Zoo, and they hung out there for a year and a half until we were able to move them into their new habitat at Bush Wildlife. And um, they've been with us for got to be about 10, 12 years now. Wow. Well, that, yeah, again, the, all these stories are really interesting because, again, it sounds like everybody, the officials and everyone, just try to give the mom especially, like, a chance and even an extra chance beyond what the normal policy with, with bears is. And it, it was complicated, and that's why, I guess, they did because she had the cubs. But, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it sounds like, you know, and then, and then I guess they, she had already done a fair amount of training of the cubs, so it was like, well, they're going to fall in the footsteps of mom, so we can't even try to uh, release these 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 kids into the wild. Exactly. You know, I mean, I'm an animal lover. You know, you hear it often when people say, "I like animals more than I like people." You yeah. know, it's kind of a joke. <laughs> you know, but you know, we do have to make sure human safety needs to be number one. Um, and if these animals are going to potentially harm someone. Um, we don't want that to happen. You don't want to have a tragedy like we unfortunately had, you know, last week here. Um, but also you want to be able to conserve as much wildlife as possible. And, and I really do feel that education is the only way to do that. And working together as a community to, to learn and to make sure that we aren't inadvertently doing things that condition wildlife to think that we're their buddies is very important. And Amy, how, how soon after an animal arrives, um, at the sanctuary, can you usually tell whether they can be re rehabilitated and released or if they're likely to become permanent residents? I mean, I'm sure it varies a little bit by species and maybe what brought them there, but, but is there any kind of rule of thumb that where a determination is typically made? Well, it, every case is varied, very much so. You know, like I said, we do get some that are extremely traumatic injuries, and we unfortunately have hard decisions we have to make too. We can't save everyone. Sometimes there's massive internal injuries um, or, or substantial amount of broken bones. Um, some reason that we just recognize that this animal is suffering um, and, and wouldn't be able to sustain a decent quality of life out in the wild or in captivity. And those are you know some of the hardest calls to make. Um, and then it's funny, some patients we get in, let's say it was uh, during migration season, a tiny little bird, like a little warbler, you know, flew into a window, which is a quite a common thing that happens during migration. Sometimes it's just a little bit of anti-inflammatories because they've knocked themselves a little loopy and they're back out the door in a couple hours. Um, other times they're with us for months on end for rehabilitative care. Um, and sometimes even at the end of that, we recognize that, okay, you know, great example is we have a, a young eagle that's here who came in with a damaged wing. And we really started off the process feeling that this animal was going to get to make it back out in the wild. But as it was young, so as it grew and as it developed, the muscle damage and the uh, tendon damage was just too great to ever hunt again. 
So we had to switch course and go from a releasable situation and trying to physically train for releasable to starting to work the bird to stay in a captive situation. Um, and it just, it really does vary. And you have to look at each animal differently um, and try to figure out what would be the best for them. Some animals won't tolerate captivity also. You can just tell that they are completely wild in their spirit and having to be around people would actually be suffering to them. And those are, those are also really, really difficult calls to make, but you don't want the animal self-mutilating or just being miserable, you know, not wanting to eat or living in fear because it doesn't want to be around humans. Yeah. And do you find there that tends to pop up in certain kind of species more than another, or is it even within species, there's just certain animals have a certain temperament where you think, oh man, they're just, they're just going to really be so miserable. They won't even want to carry on here. It's definitely, definitely. I mean, you learn it as you go on, you know, um, I think very similar that the best I can kind of compare it is if you think about dog breeds, you know, you have some dogs, I'll use a golden retriever for an example, loves everybody, just would run up to anyone, dogs, tail wagging, people, people are my favorite. And then you have something like a small chihuahua. Might like one person, might be scared to death of the rest of the world, might hide under the couch when people come over to visit. Same thing with wildlife, you know. Um, possums. Possums tend to, you know, if you have a possum, and we've had this happen with us before. We have an orphan possum, and within a week, they're almost acting like a cat because, oh, you're feeding me. You're taking care of me. You're not that bad, you know. Um, they adapt very well to a captive situation. And you have another animal, um, barn owls. Barn owls are very nervous animals. Um, they're high strung. Um, they often will refuse to eat if they aren't completely comfortable in a situation. And so you have to gauge each one different. And that also changes, you know, what procedures you're going to try to accomplish, knowing that this animal might just stress itself out to the point where you're actually doing more damage than you are doing health. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So there's a lot of factors. And I guess just over the years, you've probably developed a lot of expertise alongside, you know, the medical veterinary kind of staff about assessing uh, when those situations are uh, close calls and when it's like, well, this, yeah, this, this one would, would, would just hate it so much that we'd actually be doing them a disservice to, uh, to bring them in as a permanent resident. Yeah. It's, it never gets easier, you yeah. know, and also you get to a point, too, where as with any organization that is a sanctuary, how much can you do justice by keeping, yeah. you know, um, can you properly take care of them? Can you afford, just like you or I with our own personal pets, you know, if you can't afford to feed another mouse, you know, we have a great networking opportunity throughout the country with um, other facilities. And, and that's the great thing I do love about wildlife rehab is people will reach out and say, you know, we have this red-shouldered hawk that came in. We already have three in our education program. We don't really have the resources to take on another one, but it's doing really well with its therapy. It's adapting well to captivity. Is there another facility that could possibly utilize this animal for educational purposes? You know, wherever that might be. In fact, our, um, our one technically a mountain lion <laughs> but as you know mountain lions panthers pumas cougars they're all the same species just different names geographically where they're found yeah. he's from a facility out in california um but he lives with us now because they didn't have the room they already had one they didn't have the room to take on another cat we had an opening here 
So Tomala made his way across country wow. um, to come live at Bush Wildlife and, and be a representation of Florida Panthers for people to learn about them. Yeah, no, it's interesting how, to, how that works. And you wouldn't necessarily think you'd think of like a, a more nearby facility, but you wouldn't necessarily immediately think a, a cat or, or an animal would come all the way across the country. Just but 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 because there happened to be space to accommodate that animal, that, that's that's actually what did happen. So. Um, Anyway, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Amy Kite, Executive Director of Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, multifaceted operation in Jupiter, Florida, serving as wildlife refuge, veterinary hospital, rehabilitation facility, and education center. We'll be discussing in a moment the ambitious plans to relocate to a new, larger site. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, yeah, Amy, I do want to talk a little bit more about the relocation. We talked a little bit about that the last time you were on the show. But one one thing before we get to that, just as you're talking here and you're just so knowledgeable and so enthusiastic, even about things that are tricky and challenging, of course. And I do remember one of our first conversations that I think you were helping out or, or going into vet's office to volunteer or do something as young as like six. Do I remember, <laughs> am I, am I remember that correctly or... Yeah, as absurd as it sounds, that is correct. Yeah. No, but that's what I mean. I mean, obviously, there is a complete through line story arc here of you just always being fascinated by and loving animals and, uh, again, helping out of vet's office at six. And here you are running this uh, big wildlife sanctuary. So I guess one of the things I'm wondering as we're talking here, in what ways is this your dream job, given the, you know what you're doing at six and what you're doing now? It's interesting. You know, I mean, it, it's funny because I, I kind of joke that, you know, when people say like, yeah, I just don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I never, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be, but I just knew it had to be with animals. Yeah. There was never a question in my mind. And um, my career has actually taken me uh, directions I never thought it would. You know, I, I never thought I'd be the executive director of a multimillion dollar nonprofit. That wasn't necessarily my career path. But it's where it took me, and things seem to be working out okay. Yeah. So I'm happy about that. Um, and it's taken me probably beyond what I thought I could. You know, um, I always get the question, like, well, didn't you want to be a veterinarian? I have the utmost respect for veterinarians. I love them. I, I'm in awe of a lot of the veterinarians that I meet. But my whole thing was animals don't like going to the vet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, they won't want to see me I then. Want- yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. I want them to love me, you know, and, and oftentimes they're scared. You know, thankfully, there's a lot that's going on in the veterinary field that's helping to change that, yeah. you know, um, which I love to see, you know, vets using techniques to to, to disbelief that. You know, that's not even a word, but, you know, to, to dispel that in animals, you know, letting people bring the animals in for positive reinforcement, not always just for posts and prods and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I... It's been an incredible career um, going into this capacity now where a lot of my time is spent fundraising and construction and all of that. I'm very excited to get moved into the new facility and really be able to, to spend more of my time actually with the animals um, that, that I haven't had a lot of time here recently to do. Yeah, just the demands, I guess, of, of the relocation and the cost of that and just the logistics has kind of naturally shifted your focus. But it sounds like what you're saying is eventually when the relocation happens and you guys get settled in, the animals are all squared away, then that focus can shift back probably further the other direction to kind of what your actual fat passion is. The, the joke I make is I'm asking for a demotion. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd like a demotion once I get, once we get moved, you know, uh, which is just, you know, to be kind of funny, but yeah. I, I am very excited to spend more time 
um, doing more hands-on than, than I currently get the ability to. But but now it's different, you know, as you get older. And now, you know, I say kids. These are young adults, you know, who are working for us. It is wonderful to be able to watch their passion. Remember when I was their age um, and foster that and support that yeah. and, and give them an opportunity to grow as well. We have a number. I've been here 18 years now. We have people who have now gone through vet school who were volunteers at the sanctuary. I'm so proud of them. We have environmental lawyers. I've got other people who've now gone into nonprofit and are doing. So I mean, it's just to know that you're a part of that. Yeah, passing that goodwill on is incredible. That's great. So how is the relocation going? I mean, it it just seems so massive and complicated and and expensive. And so, um, and I'm sure it's all those things and more, but, but how, how are things going and, and how, how do you even assess when you're kind of in the midst of this? Just because I, I, I can't remember if there's a specific deadline that you have to meet and be ready for, or if there's a little bit of latitude on that, but it just seems like there'd be pressure and stress kind of every which way along this line. There definitely is. You know, I'm, uh, we have 203 days. Uh, we're renters at this property, and we've had a wonderful partnership with the Loxhatchee River Environmental Control District for over 20 years. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're renters, you know, and, and there's a day when your lease expires. And obviously, we want to maintain the great relationship we have with them. So we want to be respectful, and we want to get out when our lease is up, Yeah. Um, which would be September 21st of this year. Um, so knowing there's that deadline, it's, it's intimidating, but it's also motivating at the same time. You know, we started this campaign in the middle of COVID. Um, fundraising was difficult. Construction has been difficult because of global pandemic issues, um, you know, supply chain issues, all of that. And just uncertainty in our world, you know, trying to raise what started off as a $10 million campaign is now up to an $18 million campaign. Wow. And trying to raise that in, in such an environment where the whole world is a little turned on its head from what we've experienced the past couple of years has been a daunting task. Um, I, I often, you know, there's an, a poem that I remember as a kid. It was, you know, Shel Silverstein. It was a little girl, and she decided she was going to eat a whale. And how you eat a whale, bite by bite, you know? And I have it actually posted up above my desk because that's exactly how this whole thing has been. Take one bite, move one step. Okay, now what do we have to do next? Um, and it's such a unique project. You know, Palm Beach County has been working with us um, because they also don't really know how to deal with us. You know, we want to build a flight complex. Okay, well, what does that mean? And what does that mean to the neighbors around you should a hurricane come? So making sure that we're not only meeting county regulations when it comes to building, but also what's required by the state and the federal government for keeping these animals under our permits, you've had to make everybody kind of come together and work together. And that, you know, has been daunting, but a very positive experience. And we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. Well, again, daunting just seems like the word because, uh, it just seems like I think I mentioned at the opening of the show that among all the other things that you're moving, the the hospital, the rehab, I mean, all the equipment and buildings and stuff. And of course, there'll be new new versions of those um, in many cases. But the fact that we're talking about like 200 some odd animals need to move, including our aforementioned gator and uh, the mountain lion and uh, bears that we talked about and several others, all kinds of birds. I mean, just that alone seems immensely complicated just to sort of gear up for that. And again, we talked really about stress and trauma for animals and just like making sure that there's as, as little or no, none of that when the move day comes. And it just seems like, and that's just one facet of, of what you're planning for. So it just seems like uh, just a gigantic, sprawling, endless task. 
it is. Yeah. <laughs> I won't lie there. Yeah. You know, I will say one of the things, though, that I'm really, really proud of Bush Wildlife, and this is something that has changed greatly in my time being here, you know, over almost two decades now, is we've worked very hard um, with our animals on operant conditioning. So we try to make things positive experiences. So we've trained, like, for instance, our, our otters and our bobcats and our foxes, they've all been trained to go into a kennel by free choice through a reward system. And the reason for that was really if we need to take them to the vet for medical behavior or something, rather than having to bring out chemical capture equipment and darting them, which is so traumatic and so scary, yeah. um, they'll actually willingly, even to the point where our bears and our panthers, and we're working on some of those smaller animals, they're injection trained. So like every day, uh, Tomala, our, our cat, he comes up and he gets a, an injection of sterile saline every day. Um, and he gets rewarded for it. So it's part of his training process that, heaven forbid, if it was a hurricane, we could easily sedate and move him if necessary or yeah. medical procedure. And that's all going to be massively helpful when it comes time for moving. Um, I think the real scary part for a lot of the animals is once we move them to the new property and we put them in their new habitat, that's when it's going to be a little shell-shocking. Yeah. Everything smells different. Everything sounds different. Um, and that's going to be what's going to take up, you know, we, we prefer not to be closed to the public as little as possible. Right. Because obviously it's a revenue source, but it's also the way that we educate people is them sure. coming and visiting us. Um, and we don't want to shut down for too long, but the animals are going to need time to decompress, get used to their surroundings before we start bringing the public back in and um, and letting them come see the critters. I'm sure. So it's going to be a, a fun adventure and there's no way to prepare for it you know right. you've done all you can and then you just jump in and see what see what happens cards will fall where they lie yeah well i mean we kind of reached the end of our time but i just want to add a quick email that came in that uh, i think is from someone in uh, your neck of the woods uh and mine too we are so lucky to have you in our community every time we visit meaning uh bush wildlife sanctuary we learn stuff about florida wildlife thank you so that's uh, a big kudo Aww. to you so, and that's maybe the perfect note on which to leave this. So there's so many other things we could have talked about, and we'll, of course, talk again. Maybe uh, once you've settled into the new place and, uh, you know, had, had a little breather and recovered, maybe we can uh, have you on again and just sort of see how it all went and what you learned from it and how it's going, that kind of thing. But um, meanwhile, we've been speaking with Amy Kite from Bush Wildlife Sanctuary. The website is bushwildlife.org, and, of course, that's B-U-S-C-H. And uh, if you want to find out more about what's going on, if you want to support their efforts, again, it takes a lot of money to uh, just keep an an organization like this going, much less relocating to an entirely new uh, location. So if you feel like throwing a few bucks in there... in their uh, pocket. I'm sure they'd be happy to have that. So, Amy, thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. Animal will speak with Gail Carroll about Southeastern Guide Dogs, for which she and her husband are longtime puppy raisers. The organization is presenting a puppy meet and greet this Saturday, March 4th at Leo and Lucky's in Parrish. More on all that in just a moment right now that we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece not unrelated to our conversation with Amy Kai. This is Dana Gould with a piece called Snakes and Alligators in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. This is absolutely true. It happened about three weeks ago in North Carolina. They had the big hurricane. There's a woman in her house. Her house is filling up with water. But she can't go outside to get help because the water outside the house was filled with snakes and alligators. Now, I'm not here to judge anybody. 
But if you're going to drown in your own home because the water outside is filled with snakes and alligators, you did something. <laughs> Life is not that cruel. I'm sure the National Guard helicopter, go outside, I'm a lower, a ladder. I can't, the water is filled with snakes and alligators. Jeez, lady, what did you do? <laughs> By the way, why are there alligators? Like, I understand that God made sunsets and rainbows. Do we really need a gorilla made of leather that lives in the swamp and wants you dead? But then he come up with a shark and think, oh, it can't chase you across a golf course. Hang on, I got another idea. <laughs> then he came up with a crocodile for the sole reason that you could be thinking you're eaten by an alligator and be wrong. <laughs> you know, it's a bad idea because it lives in the swamp. Alligators, crocodiles, what's a snake but a rope that hates you? Put it in the swamp. <laughs> Just put it in the swamp. The swamp is God's porn drawer. <laughs> All the creepy stuff, put in the swamp, cover it with a t-shirt. I'll deal with it later. Don't worry about it. That was Dana Gould in today's Comedy Corner. The piece called Snakes and Alligators, taken from an appearance on Conan. Now it's time to speak with Gail Kerr about Southeastern Guide Dogs, Puppy Raisers, and the Puppy Meet and Greet happening this Saturday, March 4th. This is Gail Carroll back on Talking Animals on WNO. Good morning, Gail. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. And uh, so you and your husband, Paul, have been puppy raisers for a number of years. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you maybe to outline what that involves. But first, maybe you could just give us a brief description of Southeastern Guide Dogs itself, what, what it is and what its mission is. Southeastern Guide Dogs is a nonprofit, so a charitable organization that provides guide dogs and service dogs to people with visual impairments and veterans. Okay, cool. And so a, a pivotal part of, of that effort is people that help raise the puppies before they kind of go back for more training and extensive training, in fact. So, I mean, hanging with a puppy sounds really appealing and fun, but it's actually a pretty serious undertaking, puppy raising. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what's involved and how you're actually helping that puppy prepare to become a guide dog in ways that are truly significant for later being placed with that person with the visual impairment. Sure. Um, so the puppies, when they're in the kennel, before they're about eight weeks old, they're still with their mom. And then they go to what we really refer to as pre-K. So they already get a little bit of training when they're in the kennel. They begin to handle the puppies actually at about uh, the first day they're born. They're handling the puppies. So they're already getting the puppies they're used to being comfortable with humans. When they go home with their razors at between 8 and 10 weeks, the, the goal is 8 weeks, then the puppies come uh, for 6 weeks worth of training that we call puppy kindergarten. And that's where we teach the puppies the basics, but we also teach the razors the basics. And after that, the razors then continue to attend meetings and teach the puppies for about a year. Could be a little bit longer than a year. And in that year, the puppies go with the razors just about everywhere as they are able and as they mature. Um, after that point, the razors then return the puppies to Southeastern Guide Dogs where they are in for about six weeks of training, intensive training with the actual guide dog and service dog trainers. And that's where they learn how to guide a visually impaired person 
or how to help a veteran with PTSD. So all in all, it's about two years worth of training that's involved before a puppy is ready to be placed with a, an individual at no charge, I should point out. To, to that individual that, that uh, ends up being paired with the dog. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And not only is the dog at no charge, but because of generous donors and other participants, um, all of their food and their medical care, their regular routine veterinary care is also covered. So I have a question that, I mean, that's great in terms of the financial impact, but I have a question that I often wonder on in terms of the emotional impact. So as a kind of a veteran puppy raiser, after spending all that time night and day with, with that puppy and making sure the parameters are set and things are happening that are just part of that the phase really in the in the puppy's development, are you torn or, or, or sad when the time comes to, like, hand the dog back to the next phase? Of course you are, especially yeah. with the first one. Um, yeah. the, the thing about getting a puppy is, if you've ever had a puppy, of course I know you have, is you begin to fall in love with that puppy on the way home from picking them up. Yeah. And you fall more and more in love with them as you as you spend all that time with them and see them progress and you can begin to see the promise. Is this dog going to make it? Is this puppy going to do it? The first puppy that you ever take back is the hardest of all. And then and then the magic happens when your puppy is matched with a visually impaired person. You get to meet that individual and all of a sudden that little puppy that you started with at eight weeks and that you took back at about 14 months has turned into a working dog. And it's, I, I tell you, Duncan, it, it, it solidifies everything you do about wanting to volunteer for an organization such as this. That's you great. When, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, we, we got a letter from the CEO of Southeastern Guide Dogs about two weeks after we took, I mean, everybody gets a letter, but about two weeks after you take your dog back, you get this letter and it says, we know that you love your puppy, but we also know that someone else needs your puppy. And yeah. that just says it all. That just says it all. So okay. it does get easier, but you fall in love with every single one. Right. Well, that's a key distinction. That probably really helps get over that sort of lump in the throat period of handing the mm -hmm. puppy back over. So before we uh, run out of time here, um, Gail, let's t briefly address this puppy meet and greet. I mean, just, just the phrase sounds great. but um, So we can just hit the details. I guess it's this Saturday, March 4th. From 2 to it's, 4 p.m., right, at Leo and Lucky's in Parish. It, it's actually March 4th and 5th, so ah. on Saturday and Sunday from 2 to 4. Ah. There will be, at, at any one time, three puppies and their razors, and they have about 12 puppies in that particular group, who will be sitting outside of Leo and Lucky's, which is a pet store in Parish on 301, yeah. who is very supportive of Southeastern Guide Dogs and donates time and in-kind gifts and things like that. In fact, in March, they have, every March, they have what they call Roundup March, and they ask every person buying anything if they would like to round up so they can give it to Southeastern Guide Dogs. Oh, that's so great. As a way, yeah, so as a way to pay back, the local puppy raiser group periodically will go and sit in front of Leo and Lucky's and let people come by and pet puppies. And what's better than that? That's fantastic. Well, so again, that's this uh, Saturday and Sunday, March 4th and 5th at Leo and Lucky's in Parish. That's the puppy meet and greet put on by the Southeastern Guide Dogs. Gail, thank you so much for joining us and filling us in a little bit about this uh, magical world. Happy to do it, Duncan. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals. Scott Elliott is up next after NPR News. We'll see you next Wednesday on Talking Animals at 11 a.m.